this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Places Will Go show. Like today, we really do have an extraordinary individual who really needs no introduction. So Kathleen Saxton is the Managing Director in the EMEA region of MediaLink. It's an, organiz- it's an organization, fun fact for those who may not know, it's an organization that actually advises 50% of the world's, the fortunes, world's most admired companies. Now, Kathleen really does have a huge reputation across the marketing industry as being a real leader in the managing consulting area, and she helps her clients genuinely add tremendous amounts of value. Um, I've nicked this little next bit from your LinkedIn profile, but she's personally responsible for developing, launching, and growing MediaLink's European business, advising, uh, advising leading businesses and brands on their marketing strategy, data and tech solutions, growth strategy, and private equity. Gosh, it's a pretty full-on job there, Kathleen. When do you see it? Is. I'm glad it's Friday. Absolutely mental. Wow, brilliant. Uh, look, beyond this, actually, Kathleen is a true believer in the power of education, and she's the chairwoman of an organization called the Ambassador Platform. So she's a, a woman after my own heart in that sense. Um, and the, the Ambassador Platform actually bridges um, the inside gap between educational institutions and prospective students. Um, and in addition to that, uh, she's also in the past been an incredibly successful entrepreneur, Kathleen, I think you've just done it all, really. Um, She's been an amazing entrepreneur, and she's founded a number of fantastic businesses, including Sight. Um, And I think you maybe alluded to a little bit of your passion point about something you're about to do tomorrow, so we'll come on to that. Um, But Sight basically um, created programs around bringing psychotherapy into the boardroom um, by things like leadership retreats and things like that. Um, And previously to that, um, she was the founder of The Lighthouse Company, which was uh, an insanely successful headhunting organization. So look, with just so much experience behind you, um, it's just an amazing, an amazing to welcome you onto the show this morning, Kathleen, and really looking forward to hearing all about your story and how you were able to get to where you are. Oh, thank you for being so generous. And genuinely, it's an absolute joy. And I knew this is in my diary. It's literally the highlight of my week. So thank you for having me on. You're very kind. Uh, that's a, lo- that's a lovely thing to hear. We- we- we'll do our best to live up to that. But amazing to have you on the show, Kathleen. Slightly self-conscious talking to a psychotherapist, but I'm sure Richie and I will work through that. Um, but to get ourselves started, I mean, it's the sort of the obvious question. We're still living with the aftermath and st- still to some extent in a pandemic. What would you say you've learned from the pandemic, both, both in terms of yourself, but also the wider world? Yeah, of course. So I think there's two things, aren't there? There's, I think it has been a very difficult time. I lost my father at the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic through COVID. I obviously changed my professional world quite massively. My personal romantic life changed for the, for, the, for the worse. So I went through a real set of things that really could have been very difficult and were to some degree very difficult. But of course, what I learned was 
I have all the friends around me that I need. I have all the resilience that I need with inside me. And uh, of course, the positive then comes that you discover so many other things as a result of it. You know, part of that is, of course, me being at MediaLink. Part of it is understanding the true, maybe the real reason that I was meant to get into psychotherapy was what I've been able to do with it through the pandemic. Um, and I think reconnecting back into, given all the things I've done, which obviously Richard just talked about, it's quite easy to sort of skate over the top of some of the things that you need to pay attention to, particularly friendships and those kinds of things. So uh, my children both came home from university, so I had a bit more time with them. So I think it, it made me realise, and I think I hope for many of us, what's really valuable in life. And fundamentally, it's the connections that we make, the true connections that we make with, with other human beings that it's more, that's more important than anything else. I think they're the things I learned. One little thing I'd add to it, which is very personal about my father. So he was in hospital at the beginning. Obviously there was no visitors, et cetera. It was pretty clear that he was going to pass away. And I managed to connect enough on a human level with one of the doctors late at night that he let me go to the hospital, snuck me in and let me sit and say goodbye to my father. Now that's an incredibly generous thing that he did. I'm sure he broke the rules. But actually, knowing I had that has been an amazing thing. But that was about human connection. It was about us both seeing each other and him understanding it's something I just needed to do. Wow. I mean, just before, you know, hand back to Richie, but um, you know, very sorry for your sad loss. Um, but, and what an amazing opener to the show. Um, thank you. Yeah. And I uh, just want to echo that, that thought as well, Kathleen. Really sorry to hear that. And uh but it certainly feels like a, a real baptism of change over the last sort of 12, 12 months for you. And, um, and clearly some real key lessons coming out of that. Um, I, wanna, I actually do want to pick up on that notion of human connection, because I think it is so important. I think all of us have learned that, that, one less, that lesson in one guise or the other. But what is it, what is it, about, that, what is it about that element that, that makes it kind of special for you? And how do you foster human connection and genuinely so well because i know you do that really well how you know what are some of the things that you would you would say you know you kind of do well in that space or why is it important and, and how you do that i think and i'm and certainly for both of you and i'm sure for many many of the listeners it's about genuinely being curious and interested and empathetic to the person you're sitting with whoever they are it could be somebody on the bus it could be someone at a restaurant it could be someone at a professional event but if you're really focused on that person and you genuinely are curious about them, then the rest takes care of itself. I think when it's superficial or, we're, or maybe we're anxious or we're arrogant, either or, unfortunately, we can't connect. I think we have to find a way to settle down into just being with whoever we're with at that, in that moment. Everybody's got a story. Um, I start all my interviews as a, as a headhunter with where was home and what did mum and dad do? That will always garner many, many stories and often very surprising ones. Um, equally in my clinical work, of course, we will talk in a, in a psychodynamic sense about what was, what was your childhood like. So those things are, are very good starters. But if you start those things at even at a dinner party or at a black tie do with whoever's sitting to your left or right, you will immediately come into some material that means that you can begin to connect. But you have to be curious and you have to be willing to be vulnerable equally by return, by sharing some of your own insights so that people feel safe enough, I think, to actually be with you. Um, my sense is I can, all, I can always feel when someone is not really in the room with me. 
Um, and I suppose given my age and stage, I'm willing to ask them why that is. So I'm, I can be quite challenging if, if I'm really wanting someone to kind of really, really be with me in the room. So I think it's being brave enough to also name it when you can feel that maybe someone's not quite settled with you. Can I just can I just add for one second that I think that first question about where is home and and what did mum and dad do is such a wonderful question, such I've a wonderful. I've used it for fifteen question. years. I use it at the beginning of every single interview that I do. I love that, Kathleen. Uh, I I also love that. The, the 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 point about being genuinely curious. I just saw. I don't know if anybody saw it in the week. There's this. I think it's in Denmark. There's a library, a new form of library, which is a library of experience, where you can go and sit for half an hour and hear people's life stories um, around ethnicity, diversity, faith, etc. Uh, just literally go up and like getting a book off the shelf, but hear somebody talk for their life for half an hour. I thought, what a, what a wonderful concept. Um, so you mentioned the word story, uh, um, and Richie's told some of the story, but it's the LinkedIn version. It, can you give us the headlines of what you think your story entails? Yeah, okay. So um, I came from a very difficult background, um, my father was married many times and left and came from the home uh, and my mum clearly struggled with that emotionally. So my brother and I have an amazing brother who runs a bar and a nightclub in Portugal, who's 18 months older than me. But our childhood in general was pretty challenging and pretty difficult. Um, I was head girl at my school, which many of my friends find hilarious and obvious because I was, you know, very organised and a bit bossy. I think I won it because I took the whole school on a, on a French ski trip and we all bought alcohol. I think that's really why I was head girl. Um, and I wanted to be a dentist my whole life I wanted to be a dentist all through my childhood I had an amazing dentist and I wanted to be a dentist that was the thing that I was really struck with but as many of you will know you've got to be a straight A student straight out the gate to get that there's a lot of chaos at home I lost my home uh, when I was 11 years old it got repossessed overnight and we lost our home so it was a very difficult time and due to that it there was no chance I was ever going to be getting A's in my chemistry physics and biology but I was very musical and I got a scholarship to go to a music school when I was 12 um, so every Saturday and most Sundays I was either playing or practicing the piano and the flute and I think that saved me from probably a life of delinquency because I think that's probably the route I could have gone down very easily where I came from. Um, I got to 18, I was going to do advertising at Bournemouth so I decided okay if I can't do dentistry the other thing I love is writing so instead I will go and do uh, what was then the advertising BA at Bournemouth as many people have gone on to do and it was the first year they were going to do it so they deferred the course for a year, they hadn't got the tutors in place so I thought, OK, I'll go and work in London. I'll get myself out of home because that was the safest thing to do. I'll get a flat in London with a friend. I will get a job in London and I'll go back. And of course, I got the flat and I got the job and I never went back. And I started in the marketing department of a business that's now called Capgemini. It's called Hoskins at the time. I worked for the marketing director who was utterly amazing, a guy called Duncan um, Aitchison, who I'm still very much in touch with. And um, I kind of went from there, but I started at the bottom. I started, you know, answering phones and typing letters. I didn't do computers at school, but there were barely any, but also I I'm so old, I'm 50 next year, that there weren't really any computers at school. So I literally learned as I went. Um, but I remember watching the film Working Girl with Melanie Griffiths. And my view was, if someone can start as a secretary, as we were called in those days and get to the CEO, then that's going to be my journey. And I literally dug in and kicked in and, worked incredibly hard and that pretty much is my story lovely our gain is dentistry's loss ah oh, bless you thank you for sure for sure and, and, and it certainly is a wonderful story and it's amazing that you know you've you've been able to get to a point where you can join the dots and be and be proud about talking about how that 
that has come to life. Um, Catherine, I want to ask you uh, maybe a slightly sort of off the cuff question, but it's I want to I want to know what what role does the piano and flute still play in your life, and perhaps does it provide any level of sort of inner sanity when things are not going your way? And I and I and the reason and perhaps context behind that is I've got a few certainly not I'm not musical at all, um, but I've got a few sort of things when when I'm low and down that I kind of revert back to type and things that I enjoy doing, and I just want to want to get your sense of. Yeah. Is that the same for you with, with music? Of course. I mean, I think outside my children and my dog, Humphrey, I think that music is the place that brings me the greatest joy. So I'm a member of Ronnie Scott's. So I think live music is probably my absolute favourite thing ever. So if anyone wants to take me on a date, take me to live music. That's the thing to do to win my heart over. <laughs> I think there's something so incredibly soulful about it. I do believe that we have a soul purpose. We have a soul essence. And I think that that speaks to my soul very, very much so. In professionally, it's hugely helped me because I think whenever you're presenting, whenever you are publicly speaking, it's not dissimilar uh, to, to being a musician that's performing. I think with the piano and the flute, you have something slightly to hide behind. I notice that if I ever have a choice on a public platform of speaking with or without a lecture and I take it, I think that's kind of my music stand, if that makes sense to you. Um, and so I think it's given me incredible confidence to speak publicly and to utilise that, hopefully to benefits in things I do for NSPCC and other businesses. So I think it's, uh, I never get nervous publicly speaking. I don't feel anxious about um, having to perform to many um, I think that the musical side of it and the performance side of it literally set me up for life with that. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. Well, yeah, I, um, just just as a side note, um, Sheila says, what a great story, Kathleen. 50 is not old. You seriously, yeah. seriously packed life full. I'm 48, so I, I absolutely concur, uh, Sheila. Um, you don't, don't they say that uh, hearing is, was the first sense? You know, we were primordial soup and then we were amoeba and then we were whatever we were. Um, but it's the deepest sense. And, uh, and the it's most the final sense that goes as well, which is why they encourage you to talk to people as they're passing, because they say they can still hear. Uh, beautiful. Well, there, there you go. Um, but um, all credit to you. I don't have a musical bone in my body. Um, but uh, you, you've achieved a lot of things along the way and you've done a few flips. So I'm, I'm interested to know what has to join the dots on the, the, some of the decisions you made in your, your business career. Mm. So I think obviously I, ca I sort of I sort of travelled a relatively straightforward media career to some degree to start with. So on the sales side, which obviously came very naturally to me and I absolutely loved it and had some amazing experiences at the businesses I worked in and also worked for some incredible bosses, a lot of female bosses, I have to say as well. So I think whether I was at um, Capital Radio, whether I was at PhD, I, you know, I really did work for some of the best organisations. So I was trained very well and I loved all those pieces. Um, I think when I was on the sales side, I was always curious about the agency side. I, I felt that it was something that you were very rarely allowed to pass across to. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm a Torian. I'm a very classic, stubborn, determined Torian. So I found my way to doing that, again, with the help of a great headhunter, interestingly. Um, so Carol Fox, that some of you might remember from Fox Haynes, um, was a champion for me and she really encouraged that I could go across to the other side of the fence. So I took my sales skills into the new business and marketing side on the agency side. And then when I was on the media side, I also was curious about the creative side, but was told, oh, you can't flip across the two. Well, of course you can. So um, I also had a different headhunter who helped me move across to Saatchi. So I went from PhD to Saatchi, very different organisations, uh, but learned a lot about how that worked as well. So all the time building, building skill sets and building 
I suppose, the ability to look into organisations. So having done the sort of triumvirate of media owner, media agency and creative um, side and been a marketeer through that, do you know what? It's a pretty good qualification to becoming a headhunter because you've probably done a lot of the roles or you've certainly been around those that you have. So I never thought I'd have my own business. Clearly, with losing my home at 11, I've been to some degree the victim of when that can go wrong. Um, but I met the most incredible people in those that were setting up Grace Blue. Um, you know, Jay, Gay, Juliet, and they had a real vision. Um, they didn't particularly have a media background, and I did. So I was the fourth partner in that business. And um, and I've, I've sort of I discovered the thing that I realised quite quickly I would do the rest of my days in some form, which was to be with people, to champion people, to listen to someone's dreams and see whether or not we could help them make that happen and represent them. So I saw at the time when I was purely headhunting that my job was to be like an agent to an individual. And therefore, back to the listening, I couldn't represent someone properly unless I really understood that person. So if they were adopted or they'd had an amazing millionaire parent or they had struggled with their sexuality identification or... I don't know, they'd failed their driving test 10 times. I needed to know that to really know who they were. And then I could really champion them in front of clients. So, so that was kind of the flip from, you know, different roles in the different sides of the industry, utilising that then within headhunting. And it was via that that I decided to become a psychotherapist as well. So clearly in my own backstory, I had reasons to go to therapy in my 30s, which thankfully I did, which is why I can talk about it without breaking down. But... Um, I interviewed someone with a where was home, what did mum and dad do? And on this particular occasion, uh, the individual clearly closed their body language up and said, I, I don't want to talk about my childhood. And I said, that's absolutely fine. Where would you like to start? And he said, I'll start from when I went to university, which was fine. So we did that story and we took it up and through. And right at the end of the interview, um, he said, now I've got to know you. I will tell you about my childhood. He said, my dad shot my mum. And in that moment, as all of us would do as professionals, you hold composure and you say that sounds incredibly difficult. But inside, I was thinking, have I taken care of this person correctly? When they left my office that day, they'd come in for an interview about a commercial job somewhere. And I had they had ended up talking about something that was clearly incredibly difficult. So I felt to be responsible if I wanted to keep on asking that question. I needed to go and get qualified in some form to make sure that I could take care of it responsibly. So I thought I would do. I don't know, a year's evening class in coaching or counselling or something. I went to Regents University and our tutor on the second night said, if you mess around in the mental health space, you could do as much damage as a brain surgeon. So if you're going to do this, you need to do it properly. And so five and a half years of studying, I became a psychotherapist. Wow. I mean, what an incredible story and, and a motivation behind clearly what has become a big part of your life now with psychotherapy. and and an embryonic moment of starting starting that out. Um, I want to I want to pick up on a um, something that I kind of just instinctively as that sort of feeling is a sense of drive that you have, Kathleen. And even to this day, despite everything that you've achieved, it feels very much like you've still got that kind of oomph. You know, it's just this passion that you you can bring to the table. And uh, and I just want to kind of dig a little bit into sort of you know, do you think that came from some of the turbulence that you sort of had in your early life and and a bit of a you know, fingers up sort of moment of I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to, you know, get through no matter what, what kind of, what, how, where does that kind of stem from? I think it definitely comes from the backstory. And I think it also comes from being inspired by those around you. I think it's a combination. 
the way that I think about my childhood often is that I was underwater and that there were weeds around my ankles. That's the way that I envisage it. And my view was if I didn't kick and struggle, I wouldn't have been able to, to swim. And so I think that many people I meet that have had adversity of whatever description, and it doesn't have to just be in their childhood, it could be midlife that something happens. Um, of course, it's how we respond to it, how we deal with it. But some of that has got to do, I think, with um, our early life experiences and, and that that we were taught. You know, my father was an incredible and very accomplished pianist. Um, I think my mother uh, clearly had to cope with what was also going on and not always to the best of abilities, but sometimes so she, she taught me how to cope with adversity as well. Um, but that said, you know, I've had bosses like, you know, Fru Hazlitt and... David Patterson, Jonathan Durden, Tom Tomazi, Tess Alps. I've had people that have really showed me that you can, you know, in any new business, you know, it's all about winning. How do you overcome something? How do you champion in something? How, how are you very good at something? And I think I've always been interested in that for myself, but also others, which is, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do for a living. It, can you be the best at what you do for a living at, at service to others? But I know when I was training in therapy, I was absolutely anxious about I need to be a good therapist. I don't want to be an OK therapist. I want to be really good. So I would seek out training in various countries to go and do. So I specialized in trauma as well. So I went and found specialist trauma training because I wanted to be the best at it. So I guess the overriding sense for me is we might only be here once. I, I kind of toy with reincarnation sometimes, but I think we're only here once. And so my view is we've got to chuck as much paint on this canvas as we can, but we also need to do it at service to others. And we need to make sure that when we look back, we absolutely feel that we did the best that we could possibly do. I really do believe that. Um, Kathleen, you mentioned the word best a lot uh, and also helping others to be their best. And then you mentioned some great bosses you've had and, and Tess, obviously know, know Tess uh, reasonably well. Um, what, what do you think, why were they the best bosses? What, what did they bring out in you? What made them good as bosses? I think two things on different ends of the scale, I suppose. One masculine energy, one feminine, although it doesn't matter, you know, whether you are either or both indeed. I think the excellence, so the real, and PhD had a great sense of we will stick to our values. We're all about planning and strategy. We don't compromise. I remember Jonathan and David and Nick used to say to me, we either want to be first or last. We're not interested in second. The classic, we're either right for you as a client or we're absolutely not. And there was something about we've got to be excellent. So there's no cutting corners. There was no getting away with it. Uh, there was no half-stepping it. It was absolutely, we've got to absolutely nail this. And it made you be better. You know, Capital Radio at the time when Fru, Martina, Fiona Hosking, Linda, um, you know, Smith were there. They were some of the best in the industry at that time. And I think even in radio at the time, you know, it was a 2% medium when I joined. It was a lot more by the time we were finished in that sense. But you were striving. I worked at Sky for a while when Sky wasn't on most schedules. You know, we were trading off ITV prices, you know, to get it on a schedule, particularly if you were an ABC One housewife was virtually impossible, but we would do it. You know, we would find a way to do it. Mark Chippendale, you know, other brilliant people. So there was something about, um, it wasn't the best as in showing off. It was about do your homework, you know, know your onions, know what you're talking about, and then go and really tell that story. And again, storytelling comes in a huge amount with both all of those sides of the business. So that was the first thing. The other side of it was they were very, very vulnerable. I mean, Fru has, Fru, Fru has probably cried on me as many times as my own daughter, 
and I'm sure me on her. But do you know what? Her vulnerability is her greatest strength because I would have done anything working with that woman. I'd have gone over hot coals for her any day of the week. And I think there's other bosses that I'd have done that for too. And they garner that because they care about you, but they allow you to see their own vulnerabilities, which means you feel, okay, we really are in this together. There's no them and us. We really are in this together. That motivates me. It makes me want to really, really help someone. And likewise, when I'm interviewing them or I'm with a client who says, you know, this part of our business is absolutely in trouble. Can you help us? That immediately motivates me to want to get my hands stuck in and help. Lovely. I think, Kathleen, it's, it's, a, um, it's an amazing benchmark when you, when you talk about the, the moment of certain leaders or a few leaders in your life where you want to, you know, you'd be willing to walk over hot coals for them. And it struck, it struck a chord with me because there's certainly a few people in my life or leaders that I've admired tremendously who I've worked with who I would do the same for. And if, you know, you have a, you ever get that call one day and they kind of go, hey, man, I need you. I'd be like, yeah, dude, like, when, right? Let's do this. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's a lovely benchmark as, as a form of leadership to think and be self-critical about whether people would do that for you. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really wonderful thought. Um, just taking a moment out to just welcome all the guests coming on the show and everyone listening in. Just thank you so much for all your time. It's great to some really familiar names, uh, Selena, Finn, Hugo, Keith, Kerry, uh, Lex, uh, Richard, Lindsay, Sheila, um, all you guys coming on. Uh, it's just a, just a joy to see, see you kind of coming, coming up week on week, week on week out. Um, but, but coming back to this, I, and I, you're probably going to hate me for this question, by the way, Kathleen. You're going to hate <laughs> me. Um, but hey, I'm going to ask it anyway, because I've never, never, we've never had a question about reincarnation on the show before. So we're going to have we go. to ask this. We're <laughs> going to have to ask it now. Um, you, 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 you kind of drop yourself on that one. Well, I'd love to get your view on it. What, what's your thinking? I know you say you dabbled in it. So probably, you know, maybe you've had a few things, but I'd just love to get your perspective. Well, some of my training was done at an amazing organization called CCPE, and they believe in the transpersonal. So there, there's a real sense that our, our soul is midwifed into the world and that we have an earth life. And then maybe we go on to other realms of life. Do I believe that there is some divine intervention? There is some need for conscience. There is um, there is some level of higher power. Notionally, yes, I do. I can't name it. I can't. I don't have a particular god. I'm not particularly religious or anything like that. But I do think there is a greater purpose to our life here on Earth, and I do think that there are other levels of communication, intuition, being being probably the most obvious that we can all tap into. Um, but do I think this is just part of a wider story, our time on Earth? Kind of yes. If I had to choose between yes or no, I, I think yes. And so I do sense that we are merely visiting here for a period of time and then we're going to go on to do something else, which I think leads back to me thinking I have to do everything I'm meant to do or at least have a crack at doing everything I get the chance to do while I'm here. I think that's what it's about. And if it wasn't that, Richie, if it was this is it, which I'm sure many people believe, then probably the same notion, which is, well, if, if this is all I've got, then, then let me make the most of it. Let me, let me feel that as I'm hopefully taking my last breath on this planet, that I really did give everything a go. I didn't shy away from anything. I didn't give up on something. I wasn't too scared to venture into something. For me, that would be a tragedy. Mm, yeah, give it everything. Um, 
the the I've never really thought about the subject too hard, but I uh, I remember the Celestine prophecy, a book. I don't know if um you're familiar, but sort of as you go through that, I think that sort of helps you to understand how far you go in your beliefs about what's possible and and what's not possible. But um I, I'm gonna I'm gonna not bring us back down to ground because I think it's a great question. But Richard, <laughs> who's a, a faithful to the show, has asked a, a more marketing based question. So let's go there for a moment. What, why do you think some marketers resist embracing the psychology of consumers when choosing brands? And Richard's background is very much into deep customer understanding, segmentation, what really makes customers tick. So he comes from a position of knowledge. I can't quite believe that any marketeer shouldn't or wouldn't. I mean, I think we learn everything from our customers, right, which is they tell us what they genuinely like and what they don't like. I suppose the bravery comes from when a consumer doesn't yet know what they don't know. And I suppose you know, if it's a new product, a new brand, a new usage, that's we haven't introduced them to then that's also our journey to help them understand that or to introduce that to them so that's when you probably wouldn't use that data or that psychology but humans are very curious and strange things you know are we're like mercury we find all sorts of strange ways of interpreting something in in the most obvious sense of you know the classic mobile phone story which we ended up using it for text more than anything else when we thought it was invented to use it to speaking so I, i think that we um for me, the psychology of it is why, to me, focus groups in any which way they're handled still have got to be interesting because the strange and the curious and the weird comes out of that. And often a gem for your strategic foundation then comes from that. So I'd find it quite shocking if someone wasn't using the psychology of their consumer to, to as the bedrock of what they're doing, unless you're launching something that is so unusually new, you kind of feel that the consumer could lead you down the wrong path or a different path when you had a very fixed view of what you needed to do, if that answers the question. I think hey, Mark, so. you're a marketer. What would you say to that? Well, actually, uh, Richard was involved in doing some of the front end work about um, uh, sort of their mind states and, and need states and psychological segmentation that underpinned a lot of the work that <laughs> led to a lot of success. I work at Direct Line and yeah. we've got a lot of success on, uh, f- flowing from that. So I, I 100% agree. But I think there are those that um, you know are, are much more um, pure data based um, yes. performance marketers uh, who think that it's all about sort of digital optimization. So I think you know Rich is talking to, to a, a real thing. Uh, in yeah, some and I think that's real, isn't it? But the same token, on the performance side, somewhere along the line is brand, and somewhere along the line of brand is emotion. So to me, that there's something in there, and even some of the psychological backdrops of attachment theory and some of the very you know baseline understandings. I think help people understand about retention and attrition and all of those things as well. So, I mean, I could make the case to attach psychotherapy and psych- psychological understanding, I think, to most things if you ask me to. <laughs> but I'm, I've actually spent quite a bit of time this week reading about how um, we need to attach more sort of customer understanding, empathy, emotional attachment when looking at social media strategy and, and community building. Another big, big sort of area there, but let's let's not get too deep into technicals. Um, I want to I want to get back to you, Kathleen. So um, I want to ask around: uh, Do you ever, or have you ever felt imposter syndrome? And um, is that a real thing for you? Is it a real thing for some of your, you know, your high-fluting clients as well? Reflecting on yourself, maybe other people that you work with, and and how do you deal with it? If so, um, so clearly massive topic and often comes up. I'll start with the candidates and clients first because that's probably an easier answer 
Um, yes, it's present all the time. It's certainly present, well, certainly vocalised more by women than men, in my experience, but I think it happens for all. Um, and I think that it often surprises me that actually some of the most accomplished are those that still feel it. And I am almost shocked when they say, but am I good enough? Or do you think this may happen for me? Or do you think I can pull this off? And I'm sitting thinking, oh, my God, you're the best person to do this. And of course that you will. So. I don't think there's often any logic to it. I think it's a felt sense. Again, interestingly, Mark, it might come from the psychology of childhood. So there's something that comes in there too. Loads of techniques to overcome it, much written about, easy to study, easy to look at. And it is literally, it's almost like um, cognitive behavioural therapy. You can literally train yourself to begin to think differently about yourself in a relatively rational way, actually. So it's, 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 I think it's relatively easy to overcome if you are willing to study it and then do the homework on yourself to start changing the way you speak about yourself and the way that you start to think about yourself. So, so the answer is yes, it's prevalent. I see it often. We help people with it. Weirdly, me personally, relatively rarely, and I think it's because of my backstory, I so own who I am and where I come from that my view is therefore I am able to achieve anything I want to like I've had notions about training as a medical doctor recently and although I'm nearly 50 uh, if I really wanted to train as a medical doctor I have no doubt that I could go and do it as anybody could right so so I don't think well could I and should I and am I bright enough and am I squeamish am I of course those things come into my mind but fundamentally if you want to do something in life you'll, you'll find your way to do it so for me personally um it doesn't come up so much am I in rooms with people that are much cleverer than me more accomplished than than I more experienced in various areas of course I am what a massive gift that is because I ask them to teach me and I hope in return I've got a duty of care to give them something back so I don't feel intimidated by that I feel genuinely how exciting to be in the company of somebody that knows a bit more than me I, I don't feel I need to subvert myself in that instance at all I think again to be a good headhunter a good consultant you have to come in the room as an equal you know you are an expert in your space and this individual's an expert in their space you come as an equal if you go into subservient land in that you've, you've lost the game already so I think as all as human beings we are all absolutely equal and and if we think or believe or behave in any any different to that either higher or lower you know, we're already playing a game. We're all in, already into transaction analysis, as far as I'm concerned. So, as equal, always as equal. That's a that's a lovely thought uh, on imposter syndrome. Um, I, I heard a nice flip a while back. Great coach I had, Kathy Bain, 2014. That um, often the things that you doubt yourself for is because you've sort of lost sight of the things you're already brilliant at, but it's never enough because you're dependent upon them. Uh, and actually just reflecting on the things that you're already good at um, is perhaps a way through there. Now, Lin Lindsay's got a, a good question. Lindsay Homer, thanks as always. Um, such an interesting journey. Thank you for sharing. Would love to know if there are any ways that you deal with change, particularly in your career. It sounds you've had many great experiences and very varied experiences where you've had to deal with lots of change. Yeah. And change is um, something I'm going to talk about probably in the Marketing Society event that's coming up soon. I think that the, 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 the brain and change is quite challenging. So for me, it's about real familiarity. So my home is my sanctuary, my music, my children, my very, very best friends. So for me, it's about having some level of consistency running underneath the change that may happen. So it may be that I'm changing roles or um, 
I'm going to go and do something for the first time and I'm a bit anxious about the fact it's the first time I'm doing it. But I will share that with my friends or I'll make sure that I'm coming home to something that night that's really happy and familiar for me. Or I'm going to go out and do something incredible that evening with someone that I love. So for me, it's an anchoring. Um, it's, it's a level of understanding what does home feel like and home psychologically feel like for me so that I can, be go, I can go off and be brave enough to, to, to look at that change. Change is also, you know, we get very discombobulated by it because we don't know where it's going to go. So those of us that like to control things or like to know where things begin and end can struggle with that because we don't know what's going to happen with this. In the same way in our conversation right now, I've no idea where you're going to go with the conversation. Some of it's about having faith to be able to just go with whatever is happening, letting it emerge without needing to shut it down or perfect it. So sometimes even in a conversation, you know, we were talking about having open dialogue in an interview or whatever, to have a trust that wherever it's going, it will be okay. I've got enough about me to be able to manage it. So this, if this helps, Lindsay, I remember when I was training as a therapist and thinking, what if a, what if a session goes horribly wrong with a client? Like what if a patient client has an absolute meltdown? And I remember my tutor said to me in a 50 minute clinical hour, you've got to go really badly wrong for this to be able to skid out of sight as a human, there must be a way for you to bring it carefully back into land. If you, even if it goes quite difficultly wrong so in a big meeting anything like that there's got to be a way I'll give you one quick story I know we're running out of time when I worked at Virgin Radio for the brilliant Fru Hazlitt we had to renew our Ofcom license to to have our um, AM at the time AM uh, broadcast license and I was given the job of renewing it and I had to work with PwC on it amazing guy called David Lancefield who, who's not there anymore but he was amazing and uh, I then go to the first meeting down in Embankment at PwC, having this big conversation about how to renew an analog radio license, of which I had absolutely no idea. And I sat in that meeting thinking, I literally don't even understand half the language you're talking about. And I'm meant to be leading this project. Like, what the hell am I going to do? And I managed to get myself through that hour's meeting without showing my vulnerability or, or naivety too much, asking the odd clever question, but I didn't even know what I was saying, but like speaking in French when you can't actually understand the answer. And of course I went home that night and then the rest of those next few weeks and I studied the hell out of it so I could understand what it was all about intellectually. And we ended up successfully paying very little for the license, which was the whole point of the exercise to get the price down. But in that meeting, in that moment, I mean, I was more vulnerable professionally than I've ever been in my life, but I knew that I could end the meeting well. I knew how to get myself back out, out of the meeting and then go and do the work. So that's always my analogy that you can, you can land the plane. You might have to wrestle those controls a bit, but you can land the plane even at the worst of times. Oh, Kathleen, what a lovely analogy. There you go. That's really cool. Um, and by the way, I'm sure you didn't you didn't uh, think that you get a question on reincarnation this morning. So no, there you, know, you go. You know, <laughs> you, you certainly did. You landed the plane. You know, you landed the plane there. Um, Catherine, we're coming pretty much to the end of the segment. So I think perhaps it's the last question here. Um, but some lovely comments comments coming through in the chat as well. So thanks, guys, for that. Um, I just want to want to sort of ask, uh, reflecting on some of your experiences, there's lots of people right now who either are about the start of their career or looking to re-pivot in their career. And I just wondered if you've got any sort of pieces of advice that could be helpful for them um, as they go through that, that transition in life. I think um, it's really, I know it sounds very cliched, but you've got to start with you. You've got to start with what is it you really do want, the environment you want to be around, the type of work you want to do, the kind of people that you want to hang around with. And also for me, 
it's who you're going to work for as a person or work with as a person, not the company. I really think the individuals that you surround yourselves with are really, really critical. So sometimes a big glossy blue chip brand or media owner or agency may feel very attractive to you. But if you're not going to be around people that are going to grow you, be healthy for you, stretch you, challenge you, make you laugh at the end of the day, um, it could be a pretty miserable existence. So I think the ego needs to be put into measure. We have to have an ego. It's good to have an ego. But of course, if we don't have it in balance, we can take the, the role that is most flattering or the role that's got the best title or those kinds of things. So whether you're entering or you're pivoting, or you're, you know, in a, you know, we did a piece the other day in a research we did called air pocketing, very senior people that are air pocketed, you know, paid brilliantly, massively unfulfilled, you know, what are you going to do with that? So it doesn't matter where you are on the journey, you've got to come back to, you know, again, if we are going to be here once, maybe, where am I going to put my energy? Where am I going to put my time? Who am I going to give my time to? And I'd make decisions based on that. You know, who do I want to be hanging around with? That's the really important thing. So I'd start with that every single time. And the other thing I'd say is people don't do enough research on where they're going to go and be and who they're going to go and hang around with. It shocks me. So go and do your research. Don't get in there and six weeks in, two months in, realize that you're not in the same value set, purpose set as these organizations or brands, or that you're not able to stretch your wings in the way that you absolutely need to. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's got nothing to do with age. I think you can, you know, if I go and become a doctor at 55, I will expect to still be able to do the things in the way that I need to do them. So do your research. The way I always think about it is plant, you're planting yourself as a plant. You're a seed. You're something that needs to grow. Is the soil good? Is it got good nutrition in it? Is it the right alkaline level? Like, are you going to be healthy, happy, able to grow? It doesn't matter what age and stage you're at. Wow. Um, uh, what a brilliant way to end, actually. I mean, sadly, time is up. And uh, so it falls to Richie and I just do a bit of a summary, but, uh, you know, be healthy, happy and, and, and grow. So I'm, I'm going to do a bit of a recap just before I do. A couple of comments. Lindsay, in response to your question, super helpful. Thank you. Really practical tips that I'll take with me. Keith. Uh, rare for me, but I'm lost for words. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Kathleen is truly one of the most inspirational guests you've had on the show, guys. So, wow. I mean, oh, thank you. What, what, what to say? I'm going to do my best. Um, so, Kathleen, it's been brilliant. I mean, your insights, you've gone very, very deep, um, but based on knowledge rather than, you know, sort of making it up. You, you, you know, you're, and that really strikes for me is that your, the depth of your thinking is really quite profound. You, you, so here's some of the things I took away. You talked about connections. And then throughout the course of this interview, you have name checked so many people so vividly, really tapping into what they brought to you uh, without peer in terms of understanding the role that other people have played in your journey, which was super impressive. And um, we heard your story, which was, you know, uh, uh, harrowing and uplifting, inspiring all at the same time. As I said, dentistry's loss, but fabulous that you, you made those decisions. But you have flipped and flipped and flipped and flipped, which is truly incredible. So Lindsay's question around change was spot on. Um, remarkable. The role of music. Um, interesting. The lectern is maybe that protective barriers so even though we can be vulnerable knowing when we do need our support mechanisms I thought that was lovely um really understanding people you had weeds around your ankles so you had to kick what a lovely metaphor um paint put a lot of paint on the canvas we only get to do this once you know give it give it everything give everything a go um great bosses drive you towards excellence but also have vulnerability lovely humans are like mercury well yeah um own who I am own who I am I think that's probably one of my big ones is, you know, you have owned who you are through an amazing journey. Wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll pass to Richard and say a few words as well. 
Thank you. Thank you, Kathleen. You know, Mark, you summed it up absolutely brilliantly. But the one the one classic sort of quote that stays in my mind is it's not about what you say, but it's about how you make them feel. And and I think this morning, you know, you've something has just kind of clicked in here and it's just been absolutely brilliant. Um, it's been really inspiring. Um, it's been really heartfelt. And uh, and honestly, it's just been an absolute pleasure to be able to have heard your story and, and some of those great insights that you shared this morning, Kathleen. So thank you. Um, you know, I know you've got a very busy schedule. It's very lovely to be asked questions. I'm normally the other side of the fence, so it's been a real joy. And but also, thank you for asking proper questions, real questions that matter. You know, that's that's the thing. That's how we will learn from each other, right? Hey, there you go. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure in both ways. Um, and just for everyone else who's watching and listening in, as you know, we are back next Friday, 8 a.m. Um, next week, we have got Russell Parsons, the chief editor of Marketing Week, coming on to share his story. So do tune in next week, same time, same place. See you then. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks again. Absolutely welcome. Thank you so much.